travel back in time to try to prevent the Civil War, where would you go and who would you talk to? We'll find out how our guest, Mark Grimsley, would operate the Civil War time machine when we return to Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and with me today is Mark Grimsley. Thanks again for joining us, Mark. Uh, We left off uh, talking about the evolution of, of Union soldiers' attitudes towards slavery and African Americans during the war. Uh, and, and you were making the point that they that these soldiers became more anti slavery, but not necessarily more pro slave. Right. I think that's uh, I think that's the case. And I think that uh, sometimes when I speak to uh, uh southern audiences and I have uh you know in, in North Carolina and Mississippi and elsewhere, um, there's a a, um, a certain you can you can sometimes hear a certain uh, resentment of the idea that their own forebears uh, were um, uh, were racist, but that uh, that that Northerners were somehow great humanitarians, and they will point out accurately uh, that that uh, that that simply uh, uh, wasn't the case. And even when um, Union soldiers became uh, anti-slavery in orientation, they really were thinking more, I think, in terms of plant- tearing down the planter. Class, you know, the slaveocracy, as they would call it, uh, more than they thought in terms of elevating African Americans. One thing that particularly surprised me, I didn't know about this until I began really looking into it uh, closely, um, is that we know that uh, a lot of uh, African Americans uh, wound up uh, serving in the um, uh, in the Union military, but also uh, serving as uh, as laborers. Uh, in, uh, in terms of Union uh, field fortifications, in terms of railroad uh, construction and maintenance and other kinds of duties, uh, as longshoremen and the like. Uh, 
a lot, well, a large number of these African Americans uh, served uh, voluntarily. Uh, a substantial number uh, served uh, involuntarily, were in effect impressed by uh, federal authorities and put to work uh, on these various kinds of uh, uh, jobs. And that, for instance, in uh, in Middle Tennessee around Nashville, it was um, it was not uncommon for um, Union press gangs, in effect, to surround African American churches on Sunday and uh, and and sort of capture uh, able-bodied African American men as they left church, or sometimes even invaded the church to take out uh, these men in order to get enough uh, to get enough laborers to do the, to do the job. That's a that's a different picture of um, of uh, uh, Union soldiers interacting with uh, African Americans in the South than we commonly see. I think uh, Robert Penn Warren once wrote of the uh, the treasury of virtue as one of the negative uh, legacies of the Civil War. The people in the North traditionally would would take that attitude you you point out is received critically in the South of assuming that Northerners were all uh, free soil abolitionist uh, uh, rainbow warriors fighting for a, a free and just society, and thus having won the Civil War, the North need do nothing more for the next hundred and twenty years. Uh, but in fact, that's inaccurate. Uh, the, the, in the example you just quoted, northern soldiers were hardly uh, looking out necessarily for the best interests of, of the African Americans that they liberated. Right. You know, William T. Sherman, uh, on the eve of his uh, uh, Atlanta campaign, uh, wanted to concentrate uh, as many forces as possible into his field armies, and uh, and in doing so, chose to abandon a number of. Um, uh, uh, the, the towns and, and communities uh, in his in his rear areas, and uh, and uh, and did so really without regard to the consequences for the civilians that were left behind. And, and one example of this um, is it was a sort of a thriving community of uh, liberated African Americans working in a contraband camp uh, at Corinth, uh, Mississippi. And unlike many con- contraband camps, this one. Uh, was prosperous. They had uh, churches. They had schools. They uh, they they had uh, they grew enough uh, food for themselves. They also grew enough cotton to uh, uh, to pay a surplus back to the U.S. Treasury every year. And they were really beginning to make something of their lives. In fact, the better part of a uh, African American regiment was raised in that con- in that contraband camp. Well, when Sherman uh, gave this order on the eve of the Atlanta campaign uh, to in effect uh, to abandon that area, including uh, that contraband camp, uh, that entire community uh, was uprooted and sent about uh, about 90 miles to the west to uh, to Memphis to a, a very greatly overcrowded contraband camp there, where these same individuals, uh, many of them became impoverished, a lot of them took sick uh, and died, and this you know this was not something that Sherman much cared about, nor did he care about uh, the, uh, the, the 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 tens of thousands. Of African Americans, whom his armies liberated in the subsequent uh, campaign uh, to Atlanta and in the march to the sea into the Carolinas, by and large, he regarded these people uh, as an impediment uh, uh, to his armies. And finally, in terms of uh, uh, African American troops themselves, Sherman steadfastly, to the very end of the war, refused uh, to make use of those uh, those soldiers, African American soldiers, in his own field armies. He was never convinced right to the end of the war that uh, African-Americans would make good soldiers. And yet we see Sherman was one of the Union generals who did actually confiscate some of the planters' land to settle the contrabands on near Savannah. 
That's right. This would be Special Field Order 15. It was exactly. Issued in, uh, in February of uh, of 1865, as as I recall, and it, and there's an interesting uh, story behind it. Um, uh, it looks that uh, one of the the antecedents of the order is a trip by Secretary of War Edwin Stanton down to Savannah during the time that uh, that uh, Sherman was occupying uh, the town, and there were some meetings there uh, that involved not only uh, Stanton and Sherman, but also members of the African American uh, 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 you know ministers living in the community and so forth. And the and the the impetus for the order seems to have come sprung from those conversations. Um, and I think that the, the the thing that Sherman liked about the order was not so much that he saw it as being a humanitarian gesture to African Americans. What he what he saw is that you've got this uh, this abandoned land, uh, and it and by giving it to uh, to African Americans, you relieved his army, his field army, of the burden of having to take care of these people. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, so that that I think was his particular view about. Uh, about special field order number 15 and as i recall when the order was subsequently revoked after the war andrew johnson president andrew johnson and others you know eventually gave almost all that land back to uh the uh, the earlier white uh, owners uh, i don't recall sherman as ever having you know raised uh, uh you know raised his voice in protest of that even once no, and that that order would have struck at the planter class as well as uh, serving serving these values you mentioned earlier, striking at, at slavery and the planter class, uh, and it was simply a side effect that it happened to benefit the slaves, but that was not its primary purpose. Right. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the the unions uh, African Americans who served in the Union forces. Uh, what do you make of the rumor one periodically hears about the large African American contingent on the Confederate side? That's a, it's it's uh, it's it's not really well. It, it's a rumor in the sense of it being a large uh, contingent. If you're talking about combatant soldiers, um, there's a certain amount of of evidence to indicate that in fairly isolated incidents, uh, you know, an individual African American soldier was sometimes or African I'm sorry African American. Was sometimes sort of informally uh, placed on picket duty or served uh, uh, maybe on the firing line. There's uh, there's a, a fairly uh, good evidence to the effect that on the retreat from Gettysburg, African American Teamsters, you know, the wagon trains were were armed uh, in order to help repel an attack by uh, uh, Union cavalry. And so, and so there's you know, so these things don't aren't made out of whole cloth, uh, but to extrapolate from this to say that there were 40,000 or 100,000 uh, African-American soldiers in the Confederate Army, that really is preposterous. And then to, to extrapolate even from the limited number of African-Americans in the ranks to then say that, look, because there were some African-Americans uh, who served in the Confederate Army, and usually not so much as combatants, but much more commonly as cooks, uh, teamsters, uh, day laborers, uh, body servants, and the like. You know, to extrapolate from the presence of of, of African Americans in, in, in serving in some kind of support role in the Confederate Army, to then say, well, you know, these African Americans must have supported the Confederate cause, and therefore uh, you can read, uh, you know, slavery and racism and so forth right out of the uh, the Confederate cause. Again, that's a that's that's a real stretch, and that's well to the point of being, uh, you know, of, of being. You know, pre- preposterous. Uh, but but all that having been said, the presence of African Americans uh, 
uh, in the Confederate Army in some kind of capacity is actually an understudied topic. And if we could, um, you know, get away from the, the sort of the, the ideological tendentiousness uh, with which people have so far approached those studies, you know, some really valuable work is out there waiting to be done. Uh, and and. Considering how many books have been written on the war, it, it's uh, remarkable how much there is to be done in, in topics like that one. It's really true. There's you know there's a tremendous literature out on the Civil War in general, but and I'm I'm surprised though by how much of it tends to to sort of follow certain well-worn uh, trails. You know, I, I I've, I've lost track of the number of books we have say on the Battle of of Gettysburg, and other military engagements have gotten attention, and so have you know all kinds of um, uh, Union and Confederate generals, uh, including some fairly, you know, some fairly obscure ones. Meanwhile, you know, really major topics like uh, Civil War medicine uh, and Civil War, you know, logistics, the whole problem of, uh, you know, supplying these very large armies, um, you know, over time. These are understudied topics, and I could multiply examples of that. I mean, there's just, there's just, uh, there remains a tremendous amount of work out there waiting to be done. I think that's really true. It was a, uh, Hagerman's book on the uh, the origins of modern warfare. It's one of the few that really talks about how many wagons you need to move these armies around and how a society produces that. And, and that was 10, 15 years ago, and no one's really picked up on that. Uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, throw a sort of exam question at you, uh, since we're talking about how slavery is, is intimately involved in the cause of the war. If if you could personally go back and try to prevent the war by talking to someone, persuading someone, uh, uh, influencing some historical figure, uh, but you could only go back once, where would you go and who would you talk to? Well, I might talk to David Wilmot, uh, who was a freshman congressman from Pennsylvania, actually a Democratic congressman, uh, from Pennsylvania, but it was David Wilmot who, uh, uh, who in uh, in August of 1846, uh, attempted to attach a rider to an appropriations bill um, uh, for, you know, for for military for, for military funding to support the Mexican War, and uh, Wil- the Wilmot's rider basically said that uh, as a condition for this appropriations bill, um, the, you know, Congress says that uh, uh, you know d- denies any. Um, any intention on its part to allow uh, slavery or involuntary servitude in any territories that may be acquired as a result of the war with Mexico. And uh, what this um, uh, what this Wilmot proviso did was it was uh, it was uh, constantly raised in the in the weeks and months thereafter and always defeated. But it reinjected um, uh, slavery uh, into national political life. Uh, as something that was uh, uh, debated, and from then on, you can see a pretty steady progression uh, in all uh, American political institutions and other national uh, institutions. A sort of a dissolution from being from from uh, being nationally based political parties to becoming more sectionally based uh, political parties, so that. Um, uh, you know, eventually, by the middle 1850s, uh, many um, uh, uh, northern and uh, or many churches had divided into northern and southern denominations over the issue of slavery. Uh, the Whig pl- 
political party has uh, been mortally wounded by uh, the divisions over uh, uh, slavery. The Democratic Party is being progressively split into a northern and southern wing. Um, and uh, and you see the emergence finally of a, uh, a party, the Republican Party, that has uh, almost no um, uh, political visibility or footprint uh, in the American South, um, but it is almost entirely a sectional uh, party devoted to opposition to the extension of slavery in the territories. And, of course, it's the election of a president uh, from this sectionally based poly- uh, party, the Republican Party in 1860, Abraham Lincoln, that pre- precipitates uh, secession and, uh, and then civil war. But uh, but if you give me sort of one shot uh, at uh, at trying to uh, uh, you know keep the civil war from uh, occurring, uh, at least the first thought that I have is in, in terms of you know getting David Wilmot to introduce some other writer than that one because that turns out to have been a very faithful one uh, in terms of uh, uh, opening up the, uh, the the door to the succession of uh, political crises and tensions that lead to secession into the civil war. Certainly after that time, uh, you do see, as you point out, the major political parties, the Whigs and Democrats, begin to divide. Uh, It is hard to find a stopping point after that. I'd certainly agree with you. I I don't see where you could realistically head off the conflict from that point on. Um, Some people might take it back earlier. I think the the churches, the Presbyterians and Methodists, had already divided before 1846. Yeah, that may very well be. Uh, and in some sense, I mean, the, the issue is still there, even if Wilmot doesn't bring it up. Um, uh, some some people would argue you have to go back to 1619 and simply not enslave the first Africans who arrive. Uh, yeah. The, the real question is whether the American political system could have in some way solved the uh, uh, the issue of slavery without... War. I mean, the Civil War really is this massive, you know, failure of democracy uh, on the part of the United States. And we don't, you know, begin because of the sort of romantic haze that that we have about the American Civil War. We don't often really, you know, see it, you know, for for, for what it really is, which is you know, which is this, this massive failure on the part of what has otherwise been a very successful. Uh, experiment in uh, in self-government, self-rule, and uh, and democracy, um, and so you know. So you know, the real question is, you know, I think it's it because it's a given that slavery was going at some point to produce a crisis, uh, you know, in the United States. Uh, but what, did it have to be a crisis that could only be resolved through violence, through bloodshed? Was there no way? For the American political system to somehow resolve this crisis uh, peacefully, and, and if you go back a few generations, you have historians, uh, the revisionists of the '30s, arguing that uh, they, they could easily have done so; that, that it was only blundering politicians who made this happen. Uh, but I don't think you, uh, most of us today, would not say that. No, but it's but it's not. But it, it, it's. It's worth bearing in mind, you know, you know, something that I think that they understood. Now, now these 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 uh, uh, historians working in the 1920s and 1930s, the the people who you know came up with the uh, the, the idea that the uh, uh, the Civil War was a uh, 
uh, repressible conflict uh, that uh, that was allowed to happen by what uh, you know what uh, J. G. Randall called a blundering generation of politicians. This was this was in part a reaction to the experience that these people had, or the perception these people had of the First World War as a needless war that was brought on by uh, precisely. Um, the same combination of blundering uh, uh, statesmen that they then read back into the, the Civil War uh, era. You know, our own understanding of the Civil War is is shaped much more and comes much more out of the uh, the the, uh, the World War II and Cold War uh, experiences in which uh, uh, Americans perceived themselves as being up against you know you know uh, fairly unyielding totalitarian. Uh, threats and in that kind of environment, it became more plausible to think of, uh, uh, you know, of, of slavery as forming the same kind of, uh, of threat, you know, against which there could be no compromise and so on. Then too, um, those historians in the 20s and 30s were still accepting very much a, a view of African Americans as being, if not biologically, then socially inferior. Uh, to to whites and uh, people back in that era, you know, really accepted white supremacy as uh, as the norm. And for them, it could, you know, uh, the ending of slavery, if it took 620,000 American lives to do it, could be viewed as needless and tragic in a way that became much more difficult with uh, the rise of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. You might more charitably, one one could perhaps say that the the Historians of the 20s and 30s thought the ending of slavery was hardly worth the cost, given that the imposition of Jim Crow uh, segregation and sharecropping, uh, it didn't seem like such a big leap forward from slavery, and thus the price was awfully high to pay for that. True, you could say that, and you could also say that uh, uh, that that slavery was on the way out anyway, and that you know, given another 25, 30 years or so. You know, slavery would have gone away on its own, and you wouldn't have had to have this horrific civil war in order to produce a result that was bound to happen uh, anyway, as uh, industrialization and new forms of labor relations and so forth uh, you know, took hold. So, uh, yeah, yeah, these uh, uh, you know, these other kinds of uh, uh, interpretations or underpinnings for that that older point of view are you know are, are certainly uh, tenable. Um, I think we're going to pick up on, on the, the evolution of what people think about the war when we come back. Uh, this is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Civil War Go Away. We'll talk with Mark Grimsley about that when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated 
programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment. And yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard. And when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today with Mark Grimsley, author of The Hard Hand of War, Union Military Policy Towards Southern Civilians. Mark, we're talking about uh, a lot of the ways the... uh, uh, a lot of issues in the Civil War that have obvious contemporary ramifications. Uh, as somebody who's written about the way soldiers treated civilians uh, in the South during the war, uh, do you see any parallels, comparisons with uh, the way soldiers in the 21st century uh, are treating civilians or have treated civilians in uh, other American conflicts? Well, I guess that uh, the key conflict in the 20th uh, century would be uh, uh, the current, uh, 21st century, would be the current uh, Iraq uh, conflict. Um, And there, by and large, it seems to me that um, uh, American soldiers uh, in their conduct of that war um, understand the distinction between combatants and uh, and non-combatants. Uh, and understand the value of uh, uh, restraint uh, in war and have maintained their moral uh, bearings overall. Now, there have been some some very well-known exceptions uh, to this, particularly in terms of the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the episodes at uh, Abu Ghraib uh, uh, prison. But uh, in terms of their combat performance, with, again, uh, a couple of serious queries, um, American soldiers seem to have exercised, uh, you know, restraint. At the same time, it has to be said that even though Union soldiers exercised restraint during the American Civil War, they still wound up visiting a great deal of hardship uh, on uh, the civilians in their path. And American soldiers in the Iraq conflict, uh, with the best will in the world, uh, every, you know, when they get involved in, uh, in firefights, there are civilian casualties. When there are, when there have been airstrikes, there are civilian uh, casualties. Um, and um, uh, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, war is always, um, you know, very melancholy uh, business. And that's something that I think most of us pay lip service to, but that doesn't really reach home to us as often as we should probably let it reach home to us. And 
when you compare, uh, again, civil war activities and, and uh, the conflict in Iraq uh, in the early 21st century, uh, we're really frogging over, of course, uh, the center of the 20th century, where you have this uh, curious, that's too quaint a word, uh, this reversion to the levels of the 30 years' war in terms of making civilians open targets of military action. Uh, when when pretty much all the major uh, combatant nations in World War II uh, targeted civilians uh, with aerial bombardment uh, using various justifications, we have it seemed to be a new level of barbarity that that uh, the military has pulled back from uh, since that time. I think that's right. I think that the the ideal of the Union soldiers in terms of their attacks on Southern property so then you know, were to uh, direct their destructive energies more toward public property than to private property and more toward the property of uh, of people that they that they knew or suspected of being outright secessionists than of southern civilians whose political sympathies tended to be or seemed to be neutral or um, uh, unionist uh, in, in tone and um you you can see this this kind of persistence of uh of a desire to sort of you know direct one's destructive energies in certain directions and away from others um uh, even in the american uh, uh bombing doctrine at the beginning of the second world war which you know began and continued for quite some time to be a doctrine based on precision uh daylight bombing you know bombing in daylight and being willing to accept um, you know, greater losses by being you know visible to German fighters and the like, uh, because only by bombing in, in daylight hours could you you know see uh, you know pre- fairly precise targets uh, below. Not just entire German factory complexes, but often they would try and target you know specific uh, you know uh, machine shops within those factory complexes where they knew that certain key activities were going on. Now, what happens during the Second World War is that, for a variety of reasons, um, some of them, you know, technological uh, in nature, uh, it becomes really more difficult uh, to um, you know, to pursue this uh, precision bombing, uh, uh, these precision bombing campaigns, uh, and and achieve the results that you want to achieve. This is something that uh, General Curtis LeMay. Uh, you know, discovered in his own bombing campaign with B-29s against Japan, that given the Japanese jet stream and all, uh, and and uh, the, the fairly decentralized nature of the Japanese war economy, that uh, it made sense to go in low at night with B-29s that didn't have armor and were and were carrying uh, greater fuel loads and also uh, were carrying incendiary bombs. So that by the end of the Second World War, for these, you know, because of these kinds of reasons. You've got uh, American bombers, even before the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, American bombers, you know, uh, raiding uh, 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 many, many cities in in, uh, in Japan and inflicting casualties that could run as high as 90,000 or 100,000 in a single night. This is before, and again, this is before Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, but let me ask, leaving aside the the, uh, the moral questions of of how justifiable. These tactics are one of the military justifications was that this would break the enemy's morale to to show how powerless they were against American military might. Uh, and you hear that same justification. Uh, what will you point out? Sherman's troops 
uh, targeted specific kinds of property to show how powerful the United States government was, how futile it was to resist any further. Let me argue uh, against that. There's a, a Jacqueline Glass Campbell has, has argued that when Sherman's men came through the Carolinas, uh, her research indicates that resistance grew rather than diminished in the direct proportion to how close the civilians were to Sherman's troops. That is, those who were directly visited became implacable enemies of the Union, whereas those who just heard about the destruction but might have missed it were indeed uh, cowed and, and uh, terrified. That sounds plausible uh, to me, and I, I've read uh, uh, Jackie's book, and that part of it, uh, that part of it sounded right to me. And I think other historians, Gary Gallagher, for instance, have uh, suggested some of the, the same things. Uh, there was this belief on the part of many proponents of strategic bombing in the in the uh, the early 20th century that it would break uh, the civilian uh, will and do it pretty economically, and so that you could win a war by breaking civilian uh, uh, civilian morale much more quickly and less bloodily than to fight uh, something like a replay of the First World War. In fact, that doesn't seem to have happened, uh, and you see the the, the same. Uh, phenomenon in Germany, for instance, not so much in terms of an intensification of German resolve um, to continue fighting, but, you know, a, a continued sort of practical um, uh, loyalty to the Nazi regime because in the face of strategic bombing, only that Nazi regime could provide any kind of defense for them, uh, for them at all. And so, you know, you, you, so the, the idea that uh, that, you know, that, that attacking civilians uh, is going to produce these kinds of um, favorable political effects that they will somehow turn against their governments and undercut their governments and bring about a, a, a more rapid peace. Uh, at, at, at the very least, this idea has always proven out to be pretty problematic, uh, and there have been a number of instances in which it just simply backfired completely. Well, I think an obvious recent one is September 11th, when the strategic bombing of the United States target led to a massive public reaction uh, in support of the government and against the people who committed the act. Yeah, that's uh, right. And no, I think nobody that, was terrified. Everybody was angry. Yeah, and I think that that has produced such a, a you know a, a strong reaction the other way that it's caused um, you know, a, a great many Americans to be surprisingly willing to. Uh, uh, you know, to, to overlook what uh, you know, what arguably a pretty serious um, you know policy um, you know mistakes on the part of the of, of the Bush administration. I think oftentimes they they see these uh, these mistakes as being mistakes, but they're much more willing to 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 you know to, to think instead in terms of well something has to be done in this situation, and we really need to have a leader who shows you know courage and resolve and isn't afraid to make the hard decisions, and we're willing to. Uh, uh, you know, to allow for uh, you know for uh, for errors to be made, and um, if we're pulling it back to 1861 when Fort Sumter is fired on, uh, you see Stephen Douglas and other leading Democrats rallying behind Lincoln uh, and his administration. Uh, when someone attacks the flag, uh, politics are put aside at least temporarily. That's right, um, and, uh, uh, and and that kind of thing can can persist. You know, for 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 quite a long uh, period of time. Although I think that what ultimately happens in the Civil War on both sides is that the stresses of war 
you know, begin to pull uh, against that. And at least on the part of the Lincoln administration, there comes a time when, um, uh, you know, when the Lincoln administration is really perceived as having gone too far in its prosecution of the war effort. When I, I think it, that that's right. The, uh, the stresses of war do pull. Uh, uh, do eventually pull these coalitions apart, and unfortunately, time pulls our coalition apart. We're at the end of our time today. Uh, Mark, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Uh, I've learned a lot and enjoyed it uh, very much, and I hope we can do it again soon. Well, thanks very much, Jerry. I've enjoyed it. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio.